You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Some of you might be wondering who I am. Rodney kind of alluded to it in his time of prayer, so thank you for praying for me. My name is Derek Kimes. Um, I am the church planning resident here at Stonegate, uh, which means that my job's temporary. <laughs> Gladly, and for an intentional purpose, my job's temporary. So we, uh, through a long journey of about three or four years of seeking the Lord and asking His will and direction for my family and my future in ministry, after eight years of student ministry uh, in the South Fort Worth, Burleson area, resigned from that position and began a journey of seeking the Lord um, to learn, to grow, and be developed more to do the work of church planting. And along that journey, over the course of about a decade of spiderweb connections, um, the Lord connected us to Stonegate. And so um, it's been a joy and an amazing blessing, um, a time of healing, a time of um, development, an amazing, amazing, amazing year for us that um, about a week ago was when I came on staff here at Stonegate. And so in the next uh, eight months, August 23rd, we will launch Trailview Church in the Burleson surrounding area. So if you live there, you have some friends that live there, you have some family who live that direction, or if you want to embrace risk and come with us to church plant, um, we'd love to connect with you and give you a little bit more information about what we're doing and what the Lord is already doing uh, in the area over the next eight months, and we pray that he'll continue to move. Um, but again, enough about me. Um, what I want us to do now is to stop and pray. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 3 or scroll there, however you, you use God's Word nowadays. Um, John chapter 3. Every single week when we gather together as a church, um, what we need most is to hear from the Lord. What we need most is to hear from the Lord. So before we dive into John chapter 3, I want us to stop and give every one of us just a few moments to ask the Lord for what we need most, to hear from Him. Now we can get distracted and think that we need all of these things and all those things, but to stop for a moment, calm our hearts, calm our minds, and just ask the Lord to speak to us. The way this is going to work is I'm going to give everybody about 30 seconds of just silence. We're going to pray in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own words, ask the Lord that he would meet with you and speak with you. And that you would not just hear from him, but you would eagerly listen to what he would have to say to you today. And then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into John chapter 3. So take just about 30 seconds, um, quiet your heart, quiet your mind, and just spend 30 seconds in prayer, prayer asking the Lord to speak to you. Lord, we need you. We are broken, sinful, distorted people. Now, we have many things that we think we need, but right now we confess that with quiet hearts and minds that we need you. We need you most right now. We need to hear from you today. By your grace and mercy, would you lovingly speak to each of us here? 
Father, give us hearts that are eager and excited to receive whatever it is that you would have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start by telling you one of the most embarrassing stories of my life. And I promise it has a point and a reason. Um, So track back with me about 20 plus years I was seven or eight years old, and as a kid, seven or eight years old, and this is still continued to today, I love to make people smile. I love to make people laugh. And so there was this moment, my parents and had some friends come over, and these were friends that we knew well. It, was, it wasn't uncommon for them to come over and have dinner at our house, to hang out, to work on some things with my dad. Well, the, my mom and, and the lady did some other things or whatever happened when I was a kid. I don't really remember. But nonetheless, they came over. Everybody's gathered around in the living room. And I see an opportunity in a moment for everybody to put their eyes on me and for me to make everybody in the room laugh. Just a few days before with my siblings, just kind of being silly and goofing around, I realized that I could do this thing called the human pretzel, which some of you may be like, what in the world is that? Or some of you may be like, hey, I've done that before. But basically what it is is where when you're seven or eight years old, don't try it now, it might hurt. You put one leg over the back of your head, followed by then putting the other leg behind the back of your head in this weird seven or eight-year-old silly trick. Um, And so I courageously step out into the middle of the circle. Everybody's looking at me, and I pull one leg over the back of my head. Oh, I didn't tell you. This doesn't go well. So I put one leg over the back of my head, and you might be thinking, ah, I know what happened. Well, in that moment, there's probably two things that you're thinking could have happened, and I wasn't thinking about either one of them. But I put my one leg back over my head, and as I began to lift my left leg up over the back of my head, I got it right behind my head, and you might think, oh, his pants ripped. Nope, pants didn't rip. I farted. (laughs) And it it, it was a lot of laughter, but not the laughter that I wanted. It was a lot of attention, and it was not the attention that I wanted. In that moment, all eyes on me, all attention centered on me there, Doing a silly seven or eight-year-old little thing, I was so embarrassed. All attention, all centered on me. I immediately, I don't know how, legs just came off my head, got up and ran upstairs, got in my bed and hid under the blankets because I was so embarrassed. This moment where I thought, hey, I'm going to have attention. I'm going to be the center. Everybody's going to laugh. Everybody's going to enjoy this. It's going to be great. Went really, really, really wrong. So much so that I'm now 31 and remember it to this day. What that felt like, not just what it was like. And the reality is that deep within all of us, there's this longing and desire to be at the center. And that can look like a lot of different things. But in every one of us, there's this deep longing desire to be at the center. There was, uh, for the last probably 70, 80 years, there's been a research group that sent or had some college students take a survey without telling them what the survey was actually evaluating, um, which was actually narcissistic personality inventory survey. And they asked them this question, and here's the deal. They asked them this statement, and they had to say, to what degree did they agree? And it's the statement, I am an important person. And in 1950, how many, what percentage of college students that took this survey do you think said, I agree, I'm an important person? 
It was 12%. Whoever said that, you were really close. He said 10. So it's 12%. So 12% in 1950, college students agreed with not knowing the statement, I am an important person. Fast forward 30 years, 1980, the same survey, same system, same research, secretly given, not really knowing what they're doing, answer the same questions, I am an important person, agree, disagree, to what, what extent? What percentage do you think in 1980, 30 years later, agreed? 30 years later, 80% of people agreed. 30 years later, it goes from 12% agree with the statement, I'm an important person, to 1980, 80% of people agree that they are important. So it's been 30 plus years, so it's safe for me to say, my math might be wrong, but 148% of the people in this room (laughs) all agree with the statement, I'm an important person. Although the math may be wrong, it's clear that you and I long at some degree, in some form or way, to be at the center. Some of you, it's, it's in an approval-seeking type way, wanting attention. Some of you, it's not an approval-seeking way, but it's more of in like a control type way, which we'll get into in just a little bit. As we turn and we look at this particular story in the Gospel of John, we see that self-centeredness, although over the last 60 years has apparently grown, it's not a new thing. It's not new. So in John chapter 3, the three chapters that precede this are all centered around who? Jesus. It's all centered around Jesus. It enters in the story as John, Jesus' disciple, begins to talk about how Jesus is God in flesh. The very, uh, the very God whom we worship in human flesh. And his ministry begins and John the Baptist, not the disciple, the one that our, center, our story kind of is about today makes this declaration of Jesus that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that Jesus then goes on and he's baptized by John. He he calls his first few disciples, one of which was John the Baptist's disciple. He does his first miracle at Cana and on and on. The story goes, a long conversation with a religious leader named named Nicodemus and, and all this stuff. But the reality is, chapters 1 through 3, center stage is... Jesus. The very center of the stage is Jesus. And as we walk through these verses that we're going to today, this story, this conversation between John the Baptist and his followers, we're going to see three things. One, the lie that we all believe. The first thing that we're going to see is the lie that we all believe. The second thing we're going to see is the truth that we all need to hear. The truth that we all need to hear. And the third thing is the why. The why. So read with me in John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples over a Jewish purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, 
look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You see, as John's ministry begins to grow, he's been at this preaching and baptizing thing for probably multiple years and he's become well known. So well known that the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, have come out to hear John. So well known that that the, the people who've come to hear John go back to the temple and they get the Levite priest and they bring the Levite priest out and the Levite priest begin to ask John questions about who are you? Like who is this guy out in the middle of nowhere? He doesn't live in cities, he lives out in the middle of nowhere, he's covered in camel's hair, he eats weird food. Who is this guy that everybody wants to go here and be baptized by? And they ask him specifically, are you the, the anointed one, the Christ? Of which John says, no, that's not who I am, but I'm the one who comes before the Christ. Not just the, the religious leaders and the priest, but, but John's popularity, John's influence, John's ministry has grown so much that Herod, the governor, the Roman governor over the area, knows who he is. But he doesn't just know of him like, yeah, 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 there's this guy who's doing this thing. He knows specific things that John is actually saying. That the specific things John is saying to these crowds of people out in the middle of nowhere by the river have gotten back to the governor of the whole region's house. Because John was saying some things that were communicating a lot of disapproval about the decisions that Herod was making with his own personal life. So John's ministry is on the rise. By all accounts, it's growing, it's booming, lots of things are happening. Crowds and crowds and crowds of people are coming out to hear him preach. It would would seem that things are just trucking along, going forward. So much so that the writers of the Gospels actually say that all of the people of Jerusalem and Judea came out to hear John. That all of the people of Jerusalem... And Judea came out to hear John. You see, this leads us to the the issue, the predicament, the conversation, the concern that John's disciples have. Because it seems up to this point that everything is centered around John. Everything centered around John when John's ministry actually begins to turn and point and focus everyone towards Jesus. Not him. Which raises this concern inside of John's disciples that, that the picture shows it as, as it unfolds that Jesus and his disciples, who used to be in the cities and Galilee and all that, they came out to see John, but now they've actually come out and set up shop just downstream from John and his, his disciples. And Jesus is preaching and teach, teaching. Jesus' disciples are baptizing people. It would seem that... that John's ministry is at risk of becoming obsolete to Jesus, which raises this concern. We see in verse 26 that they say, Rabbi, meaning teacher to John, he who was with you, Jesus, across the Jordan in the city, to whom you bore witness and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that guy, look, he's baptizing and all of them are going to him. See, their concern that they bring before John unveils to us the lie that we all believe. The lie that we all believe that our joy, that we find our joy when we are at the center. See, the lie that we all believe, this point number one, is that we find joy when we are at the center. 
So for John's disciples, whenever they look around and they see that they're no longer at the center of the ministry that's happening in Jerusalem and Judea, they begin to get really concerned. So concerned that they go to the leader of the movement, John himself, and begin to share with him their concerns. Hey, what are we going to do? Look, this guy that you were talking about, this guy that you were pointing people to, this guy that you actually told your own disciples to go follow, everybody's going to him now. They're not going to us. They're not baptizing, being baptized by us anymore. What are we going to do? And by all, account, all accounts, we would think that as attendance is dropping, that, that interest is failing, that influence is dwindling, that John's at risk of becoming obsolete to Jesus would raise a lot of concerns. But John does not seem to be concerned at all. That John does not seem to be concerned like his disciples are. And the reality is you and I, the lie that his disciples are believing that their joy is found when they're at the center is the same thing that you and I believe today. That deep inside of us, we are like John's disciples. And that we have worked hard to put ourselves at the center, be that externally or internally. And now, when that begins to be under attack, we get stressed. We get angry, we get frustrated, we get afraid maybe even depressed or feelings of insignificance. One pastor put it like this. To some extent, extent, self-centeredness is innate to being human. Our experience of the world is always filtered through our own perspective. So it's natural for our frame of reference to be, how will this affect me? Anybody ever said that? Probably not. Definitely thought it. All of us, 148%, right? However, while in some time and places, our culture will collectively urge people to subordinate, to suppress their own stories in favor of the family or the group or the nation, it's fair to say that our particular culture today feeds and nourishes our self-centeredness, encouraging us to enthrone ourselves as the sovereign of our own lives. Do your own thing. What was once seen as the deadliest of sins, pride, is now embraced and cherished as essential to human flourishing. And it sounds like this. Embrace yourself. Promote yourself. Life's about you. Do what you want. But being self-centered doesn't always look like wanting the attention and affection of everyone. Sometimes it looks like that. Approval, sometimes it looks like control. Wanting to be at the center for others' approval, to receive that love and affection, maybe it also for you looks like control. See, uh, I love the few days after Christmas. Everything leading up to Christmas is great and all, and the tree and the lights and all that stuff's really great. Love it all. But my favorite day around the whole Christmas season is the 26th. See, some people don't like that you get your children gifts that require assembly. I like that. (laughs) I like that. Like, I like to take things and put them together, but I especially like to do it whenever my kids are eager and excited about what I'm actually putting together. So I love the 26 because it requires us to slow down, be with one another, and enjoy the gifts that God has given with one another. The 26th this year was great. The 27th was not so enjoyable. 
Well, nothing tragic happened, nothing like really, really crazy happened, but, but this is how the day unfolded. The boys, Noah and Levi, my twin boys that are six, they climbed out of their bed, this is plural, <laughs> and they began immediately to play with their toys. Throughout the day, there was fight after fight after fight after fight after fight as they went from this toy to this toy to this toy, to this toy. And by nature, twins, you share pretty much everything in life. They literally went from one thing to the next all day. Start 6.30 in the morning, fighting, 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 one thing after another. And I thought, you know, maybe if I can just get them to do different things, the world would be a better place. So you do this and you do this. Oh, but now I want to do that. And it just happened all day long. So I eventually got fed up and frustrated with how frustrated they were with one another that I set them down on the couch. Now 6 p.m. So we're at this for 12 hours. I set them down on the couch. And I was like, boys, you're being, and this was not me, this was totally the Holy Spirit. It's like, you're being so selfish. Levi, have you stopped to think about what Noah would want? Noah, have you stopped to think about what Levi would want? No, they haven't. Noah never thought about which race car Levi would want to drive, and Levi never thought about which video game Noah would want to play. The whole day was frustration and fighting because they both wanted to be the center of life. They both wanted to be the center and do what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, how they wanted to do it, and it didn't matter what it cost anybody else. What they ultimately were believing is this lie, that when they stand or sit on the throne of the center of their life, they will have joy. They will have all that their heart and life desires. The same way John's disciples are concerned now because they're not at the center anymore. See, this would be a perfect illustration to stop right here, but it would really honestly be an incomplete story. Because as I sat down with Noah and Levi and I walked through and explained to them this whole scenario, I walked away realizing that I was just an adult version about adult things. That while they're fighting with one another about their toys, I'm frustrated because I had in my mind what I wanted to get done that day. I had in my mind what I wanted to accomplish, and they kept fighting, which kept me from being able to even have a few hours to do what I wanted to do. That I wasn't at the center of my own day because I was in, inconvenienced by God sovereignly, or my children wanting to be the center of their own lives. And all of those things just interact with one another like this. See, when we believe this lie that we find joy when we're at the center, it actually begins to destroy and erode our lives because it's a lie. So we get frustrated, we get angry, we get upset, and at the underlying level of all these things is that we want to be at the center. As parents, when things in your family don't be, seem to be going the way that you had planned or your kids aren't acting or doing the things that you would love or want for them to do, things are going awire, do you feel like maybe you even deserve more obedient children? 
when you think about all these things, underlining all those thoughts and feelings is a longing and desire to be at the center, thinking that if you're at the center, things will be better, you'll be happy, and you'll have the joy that your heart longs for. Maybe as an adult, you don't seem to get, get much time for the things that you really want. That you would love to go out in the garage and do whatever you want to do in the garage, tinker or whatever you do. Or maybe there's a stack of books you've been acquiring that you haven't been able to actually fence off enough time to sit down and do it. Read through some of those. Maybe it's some friends that you'd really love to get together with and you just don't seem to be able to. And so you fight with and for all those things, seeming, seeming like it's someone else's fault that you can't have the joy that you want, believing the lie that at the center where you sit, everything will be good. All of life will be, will, will be smooth and you'll have this joy when you're at the center. Or maybe you're single. And you're single and you're an adult and maybe you don't want to be single. Being single right now isn't what you envisioned for yourself. It's not what you expected. It's not what you wanted. And so you, maybe not physically, maybe physically, shake your fist at the Lord and say, God, why this? Why am I suffering in this? If I was married, I would have the joy my heart longs for. Believing the lie that if you were at the center of your life, you would have joy. Or even if it doesn't take long to just crack the door and examining your own marriage to see that all of our fights inside of marriage center around you wanting to be at the center. You fighting, striving to be at the center. Because you believe if you are, you'll have the joy your heart longs for. You see, it's not wrong to long for joy. The Lord has actually created every single one of us to pursue after this joy. But the reality is, the lie, we at the center will never find that joy. We oftentimes believe things like if people look up to me, if I'm influential, if I have followers, if I'm married, if I continue to climb the ladder in my work receiving recognition and, and respect, if, if other moms think that I'm slightly better than them, then I'll be filled. Then I'll have the joy my heart longs for. But the praise and the recognition that we long for from others will never satisfy it will never satisfy. But the Lord's created us for this joy. The Lord's created us for this joy, so where do we find it? So where do we find this joy that our hearts long for if it's not with us at the center? See, John's followers reveal to us our first point, the lie that we all believe, that we find joy when we are at the center. John, him his reply to his disciples unveiled to us point number two. Point number two is the truth that we all need to hear. The truth that we all need to hear is that we find joy when Jesus is at the center. This is the main point of this entire passage, that we find the joy that our hearts long for when Jesus is at the center, not when we're at the center. Read with me in verse 27. Now John answered, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's reply to his disciples is unexpected. By all accounts, we might think that John would say, okay, let's get together. Let's re-strategize. Let's figure out how we can get more followers. Let's figure out how we can get some of those people that ran off to Jesus to come back to us. Let's go back into town and kind of scurry up some stuff and see if we can get more people to come out here and do some more baptizing, some more teaching, some more preaching. But that's not what John does. Because John knows the truth. That the joy his heart longs for is found when Jesus is at the center. See, John knows his position in the kingdom of God. John knows his position in the kingdom of God. See, when John replies to his disciples, he says this. He says, you can't even receive one thing unless it's from heaven. That everything that you have has been given to you from heaven. So John's preaching, his influence, his notoriety, his popularity, his followers, his disciples, all of the baptisms that he's done have come from God as a gift. As a good gift from the Lord. That all of it has come as a gift. And that John's position in the kingdom is not at the center, but Jesus is. And all of the things that he's received are not for him to be at the center, but to actually point others to the center, which is Jesus. So these gifts include not just the preaching, notoriety, the influence, and all these things, his disciples. These gifts also include the uncomfortable, the hard things, whenever people no longer follow John and start going to follow Jesus. When John's popularity begins to decrease, when John gets arrested and his head cut off, like all of these things, John's including when he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven, which he implies that it's a good thing that we're receiving from a good father. That everything that we have, everything that we have is a gift from God. Even, listen close, even the things that you wish you didn't have, even the circumstances that you wish were different, even the hard moments and circumstances in your life right now, we receive from heaven as a good gift. That everything, everything we receive from heaven. And as we receive those things and we stand in our right place, John gives us a beautiful picture of what this looks like. You see, anybody ever been to a wedding where the maid of honor or the best man stole the show? If you have, the reality is everybody knew it except for them. Everybody realized and knew as they were watching, that was probably a little too far. They, they kind of stole the show from the bride or from the groom. And what John's disciples are confused about is they think John's the center of the show. 
And what John makes explicitly clear here, he makes explicitly clear that he's not the groom. He doesn't have the bride. He is the friend of the bridegroom. So the story doesn't unfold where throughout all of history, the climax of God's redemption happens and Jesus enters the story and the best man shows up and is like, hey guys, let me tell you some cool stories and jokes. (laughs) No, that's not what happens. And that John knows his rightful place in the kingdom of God is the one who, before Jesus, the groom arrives to take his bride and spin her around the dance floor. John's role is to go around and make sure everybody knows who this groom coming is, who he is, what he's like, why it's important they know who he is, so that when he walks out, all attention, all praise, all affection is directed at him. And John fades into the background. John fades into the background as all the attention centers on Jesus. You see this illustration that John gives us of a wedding. is a beautiful picture of not just John's role, but you and I. That you and I need to, like John, understand what our place in the kingdom of God is. We aren't the Christ. We aren't center stage. We aren't the main character. We're the friend of the main character. Which typically means we're not even on the stage. We're the friend of the groom who celebrates when the groom has his bride. Who hoops and hollers and cheers at the wedding ceremony as the groom and the bride come together as one. See, for you and I, Our place in the kingdom of heaven and God's kingdom is to make much of Jesus, not much of ourselves. Listen, this is what this means. This means that your vocation, what you do for work, or even if you maybe don't have any work right now, isn't an accident. That where you live, the neighborhood, the apartment, the town, the community that you live, it's not an accident. That your, your marriage or your singleness is not an accident. And that your relationships, your friends, the places you go, the place you work, your friendships, all of these things serve a much bigger thing than ourselves. All of them are gifts from God. All of them given to us as good gifts to be used to point everyone else to Jesus at the center. What neighborhood do you live in? What friends do you have? Who are your neighbors? What work do you do? Or what work are you currently out of? And how might the Lord be using that for Him to be the center of your life? In the season of singleness that might feel like suffering, how is the Lord using that for you to put Jesus at the center of your own life and point others to Him? In your marriage, in your marriage, how how is Jesus sitting on the throne in the center? What would that look like? What would that be like for Jesus to be the center of those things? 
for us to believe this truth that we all need to hear, that we find our joy when Jesus is at the center. Because what John is screaming, not literally, metaphorically at his disciples is, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. What we have to hear today is that it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And everything that I have, painful or enjoyable, is to point others to Him. It's to point others to Him. You see, the beautiful part of this is that God has wired every one of us for this joy. God has wired every one of us in such a way that we're image bearers of God. Which means that we're wired and created for the purpose of pointing others to Jesus. And because of sin, we've been distorted and said, no, my joy is when everybody's looking at me. But God has actually created you to feel and experience that complete joy you desire when you're saying, everybody look at Jesus. That God has actually designed and created you and I to function underneath this truth. That when we point others to Jesus at the center, we experience the fullness of this joy that we desire. This is what John says in the, at the very end of that, that conversation with his disciples. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That John experiences full joy. Full joy. What his heart longs for when Jesus is at the center. So for us, we have to stop believing this lie and ask the Lord to help us believe this truth that we have the joy our hearts long for when Jesus is at the center so that we may then begin to stop trying to put ourselves in the center and start seeing how Jesus is working us off the center so that he can sit on the center, in the center. Here's what I want to make sure we're clear here. This joy that John's talking about, this complete joy that our hearts long for, it doesn't mean and it doesn't look like health, wealth, prosperity, smooth life. No suffering, no pain. How do we know that that's not what John envisions? Well, John actually says his joy is complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Which means that this joy that our hearts long for actually comes when we are decreasing and Jesus is increasing. That this joy that our hearts long for isn't some cheap substitute of health and wealth and smooth life with no suffering and pain. But this joy that John's saying he has at Jesus being at the center is a joy that goes through all pain, all suffering, all excitement, all enjoyable experiences that last and continues even through death. How do we know? Because John, Jesus' disciple, says that he hadn't been put in prison yet, giving us a clue that John's saying Jesus is supposed to be at the center and my joy is complete even knowing that he's going to prison. 
that this complete joy exists when Jesus is at the center, even in the midst of prison, even in the midst of beheading. Complete joy. So we can't think that complete joy means smooth life, health, wealth, all those things. That's simply not what it says. What John wants us to see, what Jesus would have for us today, is that our complete joy that our hearts long for comes when we decrease, when we're moved off the center and Jesus sits on his throne at the center with all affection, attention, and praise on him. All affection, attention, and praise on him. But we naturally buck back against this. We naturally push back against this because, one, we believe the lie that we find our joy when we're at the center. We struggle to fight or we just straight up don't believe the truth that we all need to hear, which is that we find, we find joy when Jesus is at the center. Which brings us to our last point, the why. The why. You see, when it comes to something being at the center of attention, inside of every one of us is this justice. This justice of the only person who deserves to stand in the center is somebody who actually deserves to stand in the center. Uh, have you ever seen the Olympics and they give fourth place the gold medal? No. There'd be outrage. Why? Because fourth place doesn't deserve to be on the top of the podium with all the center and attention and their national anthem being played. Why? Because they're fourth place. They're not first. They don't get all the center of attention and the praise and, and, and everyone looking to them because they didn't win, because they weren't the best. This goes, I mean, you can track back to schoolyard child kid days for this. You run a race and you deserve the praise. You win. This is what the whole podium is. And what John begins to unpack for us in these last few verses is the why. The why is that Jesus is the only one worthy to be at the center. That Jesus is the only one worthy of first place. Jesus is the only one worthy to stand on the podium. Jesus is the only one worthy to be at the center. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 31. This is a conversation that John has with his disciples where he actually begins to compare himself to Jesus. Keep in mind, as John compares himself to Jesus, John's better than every one of us. Not just saying that, Jesus said it. Jesus said, not a man born of woman was greater than John. That's everyone. <laughs> it's everyone. Here's what he says. He, meaning Jesus, who comes, at, comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness about what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's just do a little inventory test here. I'll use myself as an example. We're going to compare what John describes about Jesus to me. 
He says that Jesus comes from above. He's from heaven. He's eternal. I'm from Arkansas. <laughs> Not the same. <laughs> Not remotely the same. I can't even say I'm from Texas. I wish I could, but I'm not from heaven like Jesus. Jesus, score one, Derek zero. He's above all things, but he sits on his throne and he rules and reigns over all things. If you stopped for a moment to think about the last trip or vacation, maybe it was this last week that you went on, did everything go as you planned? Maybe you're a great organizer and like executive and you can make sure like plans just kind of jump along. But there's this thing that oftentimes interferes with our plans, and it's called people. That even if the details all plan themselves out, somebody has their own idea which interferes with your plan. So if we can't even plan a trip, a vacation, an afternoon, or something like that, um, we're definitely not on the scale of Jesus who sits above all things and rules and reigns and nothing's out of place. No individual who's ever lived on this planet got something that was not known or expected. No star, no molecule, no nothing is out of place. Jesus is above all things. His testimony sets a seal on the hearts that those who receive it, that God is true. That when people hear the words of Jesus and receive it, it resonates through the depths of who they are with this truth that God is real. That God is real. I mean, like, I struggle to like tell my kids things and then believe me. When Jesus speaks, his testimony resonates throughout all of that person in the way that they receive it and believe that God is true. He gives the Holy Spirit without measure. I gave a racetrack for Christmas. It's not the same. I can give love and appreciation and affirmation I can give forgiveness, I can give all of these things, but none of them will ever measure up because all of those that I even give come from the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given me. That Jesus gives himself, God, to us. All things are in his hands. That he's got it all under control. And what do we talk about? We fight and want control to be at the center when he's got it all. By him we have eternal life. I don't even know when my life's over. I don't know if when I walk off the stage, it's done. I don't know if I'll be 50, 60. I don't know if I'll see my kids married if the Lord has that for them. I don't know if I'll have grandkids and see them. I don't know. But you know what he knows? He knows you, and he has the power to give eternal life. You see, when we look at what John unpacks, it's blatantly clear that we literally do not measure up to the majesty of Jesus. That every single one of us literally does not measure up. 
that none of us are worthy to be at the center. That none of us are worthy to sit at the center. When we realize that our role is to point others to Jesus, who is worthy and deserves to be at the center, our hearts are filled with the joy that they long for. We're satisfied. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? The first thing that I would say that we ought to do, receiving this truth, receiving this truth, that our joy is found when Jesus is at the center, is that we stop and we begin to try and recognize the places that we preach loudly to ourselves that we're worthy to receive praise and we're worthy to sit at the center. Where are the relationships, the places, the people, the situations in your life where you feel that you deserve, you preach to yourself that I deserve to be at the center? And then confess and repent of that. Confess to the Lord that I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be at the center. That you've actually given me the place that I'm at right now as a good gift. I don't deserve, I'm not worthy to be at the center. Confess and repent of that. Asking the Lord to root out our self-centeredness from our heart. A.W. Tozer said it this way. We must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us. We must bring ourselves, our sinful self, to the cross for judgment. We must prepare ourselves for an ordeal of suffering in some measure like that which our Savior passed when he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And as we come before Jesus and we say, Jesus, I've been trying to be at the center. My heart is filled with self-centeredness root this out, we have to prepare ourselves to receive a painful suffering as our self, our sinful flesh, begins to be dethroned. It won't feel good, but on the back end of it, we find the joy we desire. We need to figure out ways that we can daily remind ourselves that our deepest joy that we long for isn't found when we're at the center what is found when Jesus is at the center. This is a place where gently, as husbands and wives, we can remind one another that. With gentleness, with kindness. Maybe you have some single friends that wrestle with this longing to be in a different status, married, engaged, dating, and they're not, that you can graciously and gently remind them of the hard truth that God has them where they are, and it's for their joy, for Jesus to be at the center. We need to live in our role in the kingdom. We're not the Christ, we're not the center of attention. We're not the center of control, but to live in our role as the ones who point others to Jesus. In whatever circumstance, in whatever place that you're at in life, in your work, in your play, in your kids, in your family, in all these circumstances and places, to remember that we aren't the center and to live in our role as people who 
point and proclaim Jesus as heralds that point others to him. Then we will be able to experience this joy that our hearts long for. Then we can rest from the fighting to, to sit at the center and actually enjoy the joy that God has for us in Jesus when he's at the center. The last thing that Jesus says here is whoever believes, or John says, so whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I'm confident that here, it's December 29th, that there is someone in this room, multiple people in this room. Maybe it's a bigger, older brother story of like the prodigal son that you, you've known about God your whole life. Maybe you've walked in this room as a friend, as a guest, or just, um, just wandered in here today. I want you to hear this. Jesus has come to give you eternal life. And you can receive that eternal life by believing that he came and he died in your place, rose from the dead. Oh, today is the day that you can experience the joy of salvation by believing in Jesus. At the end of our service, some of our pastors and our prayer team will be up here at the front. I want to encourage you, if today is the day of salvation for you, where you need to believe in Jesus and receive that eternal life, that you come forward and share that with one of our elders or prayer team. They'd love to give you some counsel, some guidance, and help you walk through this journey with Jesus. Our hearts deeply long for joy. But what we stand squarely in front of today is this truth. The joy that we long to have is only found when Jesus is at the center. When everything centers around and points to him. Let me pray. I want to encourage you again, if you need counsel, if you need guidance, if you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, that when the songs are over at the end of our service, come forward and grab one of our prayer team or our pastors. If you need to believe in Jesus and be saved, come forward at the end of this service. Lord, we need you. Our hearts long so badly and sinfully to be at the center, to sit on the throne, to rule over ourselves and those around us. But what you have made explicitly clear today, Jesus, is that you are the only one who needs to, or deserves to stand in that place, to sit in that seat. By your Holy Spirit, now would you do a work of removing us from the center of our lives? By your grace and mercy, would you take your place at the center of every one of our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.